Welcome to the Not All Better Show. Today's show is brought to you by Chess.com. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Well, among the many things I am thankful for, our wonderful country, our freedoms, and all that the USA represents throughout the world, today's interview is about those things in general and how we protect what we have specifically with our guest, Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn. Admiral McGinn served an active duty in the United States Navy for 35 years, attaining the rank of Vice Admiral. Admiral McGinn served as Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Warfare Requirements and Programs, overseeing the development of future Navy capabilities and previously commanded the United States Third Fleet. While in the Navy, Admiral McGinn served as a naval aviator, a test pilot, aircraft carrier commanding officer, and national security strategist. Vice Admiral Dennis McKinn is a member of the Center for Climate and Security Advisory Board and senior member of the Executive Committee at the International Military Council on Climate and Security. Yes, that is climate and security that I said. According to Admiral McGinn, climate change is altering the strategic landscape and shaping the security environment, posing complex threats to the United States and nations around the world. A recent Pentagon report states, to deter war and protect our country, the U.S. Defense Department must understand the ways climate change affects missions, plans, and capabilities. An important topic, an important time of year to discuss it. What does all that mean? We'll discuss that and more with Admiral Dennis McKinn. Does the United States need a climate security plan? Yes, that too. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Admiral Dennis McKinn. Admiral Dennis McGinn, welcome to the program. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you and your audience. Good to talk to you, too. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of on the uh, the cusp, perhaps, of, of uh, a climate uh, activity in, in Glasgow amongst uh, world leaders. I think this subject is one uh, we're going to talk about climate change and security uh, today with you. I think this is one our audience is really going to enjoy. It's a it's an important subject. And, and so I wonder if we could just start really right at the very start, Admiral. And, and I just want to ask you, you know, Many of us in our audience might not even think about climate change when we think about combating, you know, what might be considered vital threats to the U.S. national security. What is it about climate change that is such a, a threat to America? Maybe give us this kind of top line statement that that really will adequately convey the the seriousness and I suppose the immediacy of sure. these risks. Um, I would start, Paul, by saying that this is a non-traditional threat to our national security, and I'm talking about national security in the broadest sense of the of the term. Climate change is happening now, and it is producing more intense and more frequent extreme weather and natural disasters, including record-breaking heat waves, droughts, wildfires, hurricanes, coastal and inland flooding in the United States uh, and around the world. These natural disasters act as what I would call a threat multiplier for instability in key areas of the world that are in our national interest. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. One way to think about this uh, business of climate change is that our energy security, our economic security, and environmental security are inextricably linked. These are the pillars that form the foundation of our overall national security and quality of life. And the loss of environmental security to climate change 
throws everything out of balance. Thank you for that. So when did this recognition begin? Was this an administration by administration decision? Was it something that the Defense Department really was was driving? How did we really start to recognize some of these climate change issues related to uh, national security? In the uh, scientific community, it really started uh, to be recognized as a threat of climate change and global warming in the, I'd say, really in the 1980s. The intelligence and national security communities began to see climate change as a growing threat in, I'd say, the 90s and early 2000s. To illustrate that point, uh, there was a group called the CNA Military Advisory Board, a group of about a dozen of us retired three- and four-star admirals and generals from all of the military services. And uh, we put out a report that uh, was called Climate Change and the Threat to National Security. When it first came out, people said, what are a bunch of retired military guys talking about climate change? Isn't that something that uh, the environmental community and big business are supposed to be arguing over? And the answer was because in our analysis, we took a look at how the climate change and global warming would affect weather patterns and the effect of those intense weather patterns on the functioning of societies and governments around the world. That's where we said, hey, this is going to be a threat multiplier to, for instability. Uh, if you take a look around the world, you could say governments are uh, sometimes fragile, particularly in the, uh, in the uh, low latitudes. Uh, they, the societies are fragile. They're one disaster away from, from disaster. And that can cause a tremendous amount of instability competition for, uh, for water, competition for arable lands or food, uh, competition for living space that is free from the threats of uh, coastal flooding, for example, or the threat of typhoons or hurricanes. So if these governments and societies fail, uh, it's a recipe for more military mission in the case of the United States. I would say one of the uh, one of the scenarios on what we call a lower end of the threat spectrum would be disaster relief uh, or humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. We've been doing that for literally decades, uh, and that will continue. But the frequency of those scenarios and the intensity of those scenarios is going to continue to go up. So I recognize that this this started um – with some recognition by the Defense Department and uh, many of you in in these senior leadership um, positions, Admiral, who's responsible for it now for for preparing this security plan and and preventing the threats and preparing all of us to deal with them? I would say that uh, certainly the Department of Defense and the national security community in general have responsibilities to produce and to update uh, various plans related to the threat of. Uh, of uh, climate change, but it, it goes beyond that. Uh, it's a, a threat to uh, our built infrastructure, for example. So insurance companies, financial institutions, investors, large uh, multinational companies are concerned about it, and they are starting to uh, recognize that this is a real threat. It's already happening, and they need to uh, put plans in place. In the case of the national security community, uh, the uh, responsibility for plan would rest primarily on the Department of Defense and Homeland Security. So they have put out 
formal plans uh, that uh, give uh, guidelines and instructions to various uh, departments and agencies about uh, becoming more resilient, being able to uh, continue functioning with with minimal impact if possible in the face of uh, more frequent and intense uh, natural disasters. Um, the So the Department of Defense put out a climate assessment threat summary. This goes back, by the way, probably a good uh, 10 years where uh, the uh, national strategy actually talked about uh, climate change, not in the detail that it has now, because we didn't know as much back then as we continue to learn every year. But uh, the Department of Defense has a key role. But I want to emphasize that uh, this goes across society. One way of thinking about it is it's difficult uh, that climate change, unlike the more traditional threats to national security, doesn't have specific characteristics, timelines, precise locations, and the dangers are very broad and hard to predict with a, a usual level of accuracy that we would like to have. That said, though, we do have uh, good uh, plans that uh, our adaptability. We need to be able to live and function in a world of climate challenges, primarily by increasing our preparedness and our resilience. And that uh, preparedness and resilience, I would say, has to happen on uh, a basis of our personal lives, our community lives, our national and really international lives, be able to uh, recognize, yep, things are gonna be tougher for a long while in terms of uh, mother nature. So what can we do to toughen our infrastructure, our, our organizations, our functions, so that we can continue on with whatever mission we happen to, happen to be on in a much more resilient way. So that would call that the uh, adaptation aspect of uh, working a climate challenge plan or climate change plan. The other one is that we need to try and mitigate the most serious warming scenarios by reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that we're putting into the atmosphere and have been literally since the uh, dawn of the industrial age over uh, 120 years ago. So the best way to do that is by transitioning to more sustainable sources and end uses of the energy that powers our very economy and personal lives. Renewable energy such as wind and solar are certainly part of that, but we really need to take a comprehensive holistic approach. There, uh, I've heard it said, Listen, when you're dealing with the challenge of climate change, there isn't a silver bullet, one single technology or whatever, but there's a lot of silver buckshot. That buckshot can consist of uh, the deployment of uh, better, more effective renewable energy, storage mechanisms for, uh, for electricity and heat, electrification of uh, many of the functions, especially transportation, that currently rely on fossil fuel to, uh, to power our economy, and energy efficiency. Basically, how can we get the most value uh, and the most output product, if you will, from the energy that we do use? A good example of that uh, I can think of is electric heat pumps. Uh, if we can transition when you need to replace uh, an HVAC for a, a building or your home residence or even for an industrial complex, if you can say, you know what? In order to produce heat in the winter, um, we don't need to continue 
uh, burning natural gas because there are some very, very efficient and affordable heat pumps that can cool us in the summertime and keep us warm in the wintertime. And uh, it's very, and, and there isn't any uh, greenhouse. A, a whole host of, uh, of solutions in that, uh, that pattern of silver buckshot. I can't help but think as you're talking about this, that this idea of preparation, adaptation, resilience, this potentially could have, it could be a real driver, I suppose, for job creation and employment. The economy is so crucial today. How can we look at this as being something that is going to mean growth to the economy? What what lies ahead in, in, in relation to that subject? As daunting a challenge as climate change is, Paul, it is exciting. It's exciting for the reasons that you uh, mentioned or implied with your question, and that is we are creating a tremendous amount of uh, a new energy economy, whole new industries, value chains, good jobs that, that are, are being created as we speak. And there's a historical precedent for this. I mean, Let's say that we were in the transportation business uh, around 1900. Uh, well, we'd be in. We'd have stables. We'd have uh, harnesses. We'd have buggies. We'd have uh, buggy whips. Uh, and then along comes a guy like uh, Henry Ford and uh, basically creates another way of getting around for uh, our personal use and, and and for our economy. And all of a sudden we have a whole set of value chains associated with the automobile industry bringing uh, us what we have today. Another way is uh, the telecommunications revolution. Gosh, when uh, you know the Cold War ended and uh, Eastern Europe wanted to have a more modern telecommunications system, they didn't replicate what we had done in the West by simply uh, putting a bunch of uh, telephone poles and wires and, and hooking them all up into, into the, a phone company, they said, hey, there's this stuff called wireless communication. So you look around the world today, my goodness, everybody has uh, mobile phones, iPhones, uh, every type of device in which we not only just communicate on a personal level, but on a business level, it's, it really, really is incredible. All of these new technologies and new industries a great great economic growth and great high-paying jobs we're going to see and are seeing a uh, new uh, revolution in electric transportation there was an announcement earlier uh, this week that uh, that the uh, Hertz car rental is going to buy a uh, hundred thousand uh, Tesla <laughs> electric vehicles I saw that. Uh, to, to mm -hmm. put in their fleet and people are going to be familiar with it. They may be a little bit apprehensive about, hey, how different is this? How good is it? Is it better? It will really, really revolutionize, uh, I think, our, our transportation system with EVs and growing consumer knowledge and, and acceptance of EVs. The, the favorite one I've had recently is uh, Ford just announced uh, the uh, creation or the, the manufacturing of a F-150, the most popular pickup truck in America in history, uh, is going electric. It's the F-150 Lightning, and it is awesome as a pickup truck, but it's really, really good. You can actually use it uh, to uh, power your home in the event of a widespread uh, grid out outage, electrical uh, outage, for 
two or three uh, days at a time. So a lot of great things happening. And oh, by the way, if you go back up the value chain and the supply chain, let's say the F-150 or any of the General Motors or Chrysler or the foreign manufacturers, there are jobs being created. Hey, it's Paul, and I've got a quick mention from our sponsor today, chess.com. You know, many of us in our Not Old Better Show audience love games, and we've talked recently about playing video games and the value to our brains. According to Science Times, we'll put links to where you can find this information on our website. Again, according to Science Times, playing chess improves memory, enhances IQ, promotes creativity, and helps in recovery of a stroke or disability. This is all good stuff, but we play to have fun, too. I play chess.com long distance with my son, Avery, who's very good. And we have a blast, at least Avery does, as he literally vanquishes me each time we play. But, you know, everyone is playing chess these days, especially on chess.com, whose number of players has grown five times since 2020. It's a fantastic game, and it's so great that so many people are playing it now. You can play for free and it is easy to play. And unlike other games that change all the time where you have to pay to win and defeat levels to progress, chess is simple to learn and not distracting. Improving your chess game is easy on chess.com. There are excellent instructional videos on chess.com and after you play a game, you can have the computer analyze your mistakes and recommend quick lessons to strengthen your skills. This is just this is just awesome. I personally have a diamond membership which gets me unlimited access to all of chess.com and its features, unlimited puzzles, unlimited lessons, unlimited game analysis and more and I, and I love it. Chess is becoming so popular that the Netflix show The Queen's Gambit recently won 11 Emmy Awards, including the top award for limited series. And The Queen's Gambit is a favorite of ours here in our home. I play chess for my phone as well as my desktop computer and my tablet on chess.com. If you're interested, you can find me there, just like Avery, plus lots of your friends and family and grandkids who are already playing on chess.com. Ready to improve your chess game? Head over to chess.com slash not old today to start playing. That's chess.com slash not old to start playing with your friends, family, grandkids, everyone. And start learning chess from the pros today. Thanks, everybody. We are with Admiral Dennis McGinn. Admiral McGinn is the former president of the American Council on Renewable Energy, where he led efforts to communicate the economic, security, and environmental benefits of renewable energy. We're talking today about climate change and security, uh, security, national security, and uh, the global impacts of climate change. We've been talking about the economy. I wonder, Admiral McGinn, if you'd tell us a little bit about this idea of national security and and how exactly the threat of climate change is assessed with respect to national security? Sure. Um, If we look around the world uh, at various regions of interest uh, to the United States, just about everywhere, um, we see that uh, nations and societies uh, live alongside various types of what I would call fault lines, not the traditional um, you know, geo fault lines. Certainly, there are some of those as well. Earth fault lines I'm talking about are differences related to uh, the economies, 
to ethnic differences, religious differences, political differences, financial. And these fault lines are the sources of various types of conflict. Some of them are very, very much on the back burner. Some are, if you will, hot wars. Uh, Yemen war uh, on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula is is one that uh, is certainly in that category. There's more going on in uh, in the Sudan and uh, Africa, for example. So uh, th- what happens when you start pressurizing along those fault lines uh, in these societies and governments with increased frequency and intensity of bad weather, uh, Mother Nature it can really, really cause them to fail. And uh, the societies can descend into uh, quite uh, chaotic situations where you can bring on terrorism, you can bring on paramilitaries, uh, human human trafficking, drug trafficking, a whole host of ills. But it's primarily because it pressurizes along the fault lines that people have differences around, differences in around the world. So our intelligence community in the United States working in partnership uh, and in alliance with uh, other intelligence services around the, the world are monitoring uh, how things are going uh, in the traditional sense. But increasingly, if we are anticipating that uh, there's going to be uh, a two or three year period of drought uh, in Syria, for example, or uh, the the wheat crop in Russia is going to fail, or there's going to be uh, alternating periods of unbelievable flooding in the four major rivers in the South Asian Peninsula, uh, where we find Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. We can anticipate that there's going to be a lot of uh, unrest, and it could escalate to a military confrontation. So monitoring those scenarios and doing scenario planning where we actually get together, not just in the United States national security community, but with the the uh, national security communities of partner nations and, and allied nations, and we play out, okay, what if this happened? How could we be more prepared to respond? And importantly, what could we do to help prevent or to mitigate uh, the worst effects of that type of a, a water scenario that is either alternating between um, the rivers drying up at certain times of the years or rivers uh, that uh, are overwhelming communities because you don't have that buffering effect Thank you for that answer. I appreciate that because I, I think many in our audience audience will look at terrorism and they'll they'll see it as a regional, very specific kind of geographic, perhaps even to certain populations. And climate change doesn't work that way. And you're you're kind of alluding to this idea that that there are worldwide partners that we have in combating this effort. Is that a true statement? Do you, do you think that we're really gathering world leaders to combat this? Or are we kind of alone in addressing some of these issues? We we are, in fact, gathering in partnership. You mentioned mm-hmm. uh, Glasgow. Mm-hmm. At the uh, mm-hmm. so-called Conference of the Parties, number 26, begins later this week. That will bring together world leaders, the private sector, and financial institutions to uh, assess where we are in uh, 
dealing with the challenges, the growing challenges of climate change. So that really, really is important. And oh, by the way, we have to do it because climate change, greenhouse gases aren't confined to the skies above a particular, a common, uh, you can think of the, the global atmosphere as a common dumping ground for greenhouse gases, unfortunately. So we, we have to have international uh, cooperation to do that. That cooperation is going to go at different paces, though. Uh, there are certain uh, nations, you know, more developed nations that have the wherewithal to do more about it, to change and more, move more quickly into a uh, new energy economy. And there are others that, that, that just can't afford to do it. But there needs to be assistance across uh, national lines. But we should not, in the United States, uh, stand by and say, hey, there's nothing we can do about it as long as China keeps building coal plants or uh, exporting them to Southeast Asia. We, we can't do anything. We can. The United States leadership is absolutely critical. Technical leadership, political leadership, and financial leadership as well to, uh, to get on with this because this is an international problem. It requires international uh, solutions, but those solutions on a national basis are going to be proceeding at various uh, various speeds. Admiral, will will these solutions just be uh, solely focused on just wind and solar and alternatives? Is that going to solve the issue alone, or is it just much, much deeper than that? Uh, it, it needs to be much more comprehensive, Paul. Uh, I would mm -hmm, put it this mm -hmm. way. Renewable energy, <clears throat> solar energy, non-fossil non fuel energy are absolutely a key part of our transition to what I keep calling the new energy economy. But you need to have other things as well. You need to have uh, – we need to uh, figure out how can we continue to do – nuclear power, clean nuclear power, safe nuclear power, small modular reactors, if you will, keeping the uh, nuclear plants that we already have in good operating conditions for as long as they are viable economically and technically. We need to uh, continue to uh, do research and development and deployment of hydrogen for various purposes, whether it's to power fuel cells to produce electricity or uh, whether it's uh, to uh, supplement initially uh, our use of natural gas. Uh, I think that there are a lot of, uh, of aspects of this uh, new energy economy. Technically, and the policies and the financial investments are really uh, as key to uh, the solution as the technology. But, you know, the, the, along these lines, um, there was a Saudi oil minister years ago who once said, um, you know, we should remember that the Stone Age didn't, didn't uh, end because we ran out of stones. And the Oil Age is not going to end because we run out of oil. The Stone Age ended because there were better solutions. They were called metals, you know, tools and everything that were a lot better than the stone axe. And the uh, Oil Age or the age of fossil fuel will end because there are more uh, and better solutions uh, like solar, wind, geothermal, uh, energy efficiency devices. And, and oh, by the way, as I mentioned before, these will also create great economic outcomes as well on a personal level, as well as on a national level. 
So uh, renewable energy, yes, but it has to go beyond just wind, solar, and, and other forms of renewable. It has to have other aspects, especially energy efficiency. Admiral, you used a term earlier, threat multiplier, and I, I wonder if you'd define that for us. Why, why is climate change a threat multiplier? Does that, to me, that, that almost implies that it's it's going to get worse before it gets better? Well, we've already, uh, pardon the term, uh, baked in a lot of bad weather because of the increase in uh, average global temperatures and regional temperatures uh, over the past 100 years or so. So yes, there's going to be more frequent and more intense uh, uh, weather to deal with in the, in the outcomes. But we can help to, uh, you know, what do they say? If you find yourself in a hole, job one is stop digging. Well, we want to stop uh, pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere uh, so that we can avoid the worst scenarios, the greatest amounts of uh, global temperature rise and, uh, you know, put a, put a cap on it. The, the year 2050 is often used as we want to be uh, net zero on our greenhouse gases and uh, around the world. And it's going to be a challenge to do that, but we are starting to do it, uh, to do it now. The threat multiplier aspect is that it affects so many things. I'll use uh, California as an example. Last summer, uh, actually summer before last, uh, there was an unbelievable, unprecedented heat wave that actually not only made people uncomfortable, but it caused power outages, uh, which had kind of a cascading effect. And they had to uh, shut off power to a much wider area because of uh, the uh, intensity of this unprecedented heat wave. Same thing happened this year in the Pacific Northwest. Tem- temperatures in British Columbia in the hundreds are 110 degrees, just incredible. Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon. So all of these things have cascading effects that that multiply the threat to human life in many cases, to our economy, to our ability to move about and and just uh, conduct all of the the desirable functions of society. Admiral, again, we so appreciate your generous time. I just really have one final question for you. you. You've been, you know, you've been so forthcoming about what we need to know and 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 what we need to know now, how do we get involved? How does my audience get involved in order to do our part in, in, in kind of blunting some of these impacts of climate change? Sure. Uh, I would say, Paul, continue to uh, learn about climate change, what it is, what the implications of climate change are, but to do it in a positive way. A lot of folks uh, go in and do mode and uh, you know, say, oh man, there's nothing we can do, or it's going to be really bad for us, our children, our grandchildren. That is not the case. We don't have to simply accept that climate change uh, is going to win, if you will, the uh, the battle for uh, high quality human life on, on this wonderful planet. As I mentioned, there are a lot of positive aspects to uh, improving our local regional and global atmospheric quality water quality that we will that will benefit us and our children and grandchildren uh very very clearly uh i mentioned the economic benefits of transitioning to a new energy economy but i would say uh to to your audience just learn about it uh have a balanced look talk about it with friends neighbors uh, you know work partners etc 
and uh, just really understand that uh, this is fact-based science and uh, don't let the, the politics of it, unfortunately, in the, uh, I'd say the early 2000s, it really, really got politicized, this whole idea of climate change. Do you believe in climate change? No, I don't. Because of this, if you go back to the root cause of that politicization, it is simply, it was competing economic and political uh, interests that just put out all kinds of crazy arguments about it. It is real. Uh, recent polling, about two-thirds of Americans, uh, recent polls think that climate change is a very or extremely troubling uh, future. So, and asking that question, what can we do about it? Learn about it, talk about it. And oh, by the way, I would say make good choices. Um, you don't have to... Uh, sacrifice quality of life or the way in, in which uh, you and your families live. But I'll use a simple example. Hey, if you've got a replacement light bulb, you want to go with a, an LED or light emitting diode that uses a tenth or less of uh, the amount of electricity. Uh, when it comes time to replace the family car or truck or van or whatever, take a look at the, uh, at the economics of going electric. That's going to become more and more ubiquitous. There's going to be more and more charging stations. Hey, look, if, if Avis can do it, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Hertz can do it, uh, the rest of us can do it in terms of our Amazon delivery plans, our, uh, our uh, UPS, uh, FedEx. And oh, by the way, another thing that I would really like to see is the way we get our mail the last mile ought to be on electric power so there are a lot of good things to uh, good policies to support and uh, we can create uh, opportunity out of this tremendous challenge of climate change admiral dennis mcginn has been our guest today admiral mcginn first and foremost thank you sir for your service for protecting our country for making us aware and and as you say continuing to learn about this in a positive way and understand the ways that climate change can affect all of us. This has been a wonderful conversation. We'd love to have you back. I just know our audience is going to be interested in this on an ongoing you know, level and, and your knowledge and expertise will be valuable in helping us understand it better. So thank you, sir, again, for all that you do and uh, for spending some time with us today to explain this complex subject. Thank you, Paul, and I look forward to uh, future conversations with you and your audience. My thanks to Chess.com for sponsoring today's show. Enjoy the holidays with your family by playing Chess.com matches. Please support our sponsors. My thanks to Admiral Dennis McKinn for his service, his preparation, his expertise, and willingness to share such important, sensitive information with us today. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be safe, be thankful, and remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Happy holidays, and I'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.